Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us today for AOA. Taking a look at the markets here, the first full day of trading after the World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates were released yesterday by the USDA. We're seeing some weakness in the corn and soybean markets. Corn down a nickel to six cents. Soybeans down 11 to 12 cents so far today. Wheat mixed unchanged to up a little bit. We're going to talk in segment three with Arlen Suderman, chief commodities economist at Stonex, about the report and how he thinks it might change the balance sheets heading into the rest of November. We're also going to check in on swine health. Dr. Paul Sundberg of the Swine Health Information Center will be joining us. Have seen some African swine fever outbreaks. Did strike a new country in Southeast Asia. Paul will give us an update on what is happening there around the world and domestically here with disease pressure. But first, we are going to talk with our friend Don Close. He's a a man a lot of you know throughout the ag industry. He has been researching and writing on the beef industry for some time, and he's got a new position. Don, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I am fantastic. Don, I got an email that you are now the Chief Research and Analytics Officer with Terrain Ag. Can you tell us a little bit about what Terrain is? It's, uh, it's an exciting project. So Terrain is, uh, is formed with a partnership between American Ag Credit, Farm Credit Services of America, and Frontier Farm Credit. And what uh, we've been charged to do is to put a, a full research team together. Uh, and so for the last six, eight months, I have, uh, I've been putting a team together. Uh, we've been building out the website and the software, and I've been hiring analysts. And uh, this was launch week, so it's pretty exciting. It is very exciting. Don, tell us a little bit about your analysts. What aspects of the ag industry are you going to be digging into? We're going to take a full gamut uh, of the analysts that I have uh, on staff today. Uh, I've got Ben Lane uh, as a dairy analyst, uh, Matt Roberts uh, with the, a long history and originally with the Ohio State uh, is grain and oil seeds. I've got Matt Clark that is uh, a macro economist primarily and is also going to be working the timber industry. I've got Dave Weber uh, working animal proteins, and I've got a young analyst working the wheat market by the name of Cody Barilla. And then add to add to the team, I'm still working on to fill analyst roles for a fruits and vegetables analyst, uh, tree nuts and fruits, uh, wine industry analyst, and uh, farm inputs. So we'll have, like I say, we'll have a full-rounded team when we're we're all put together. You will. And Don, from from the perspective of the ag credit associations that have come together to build terrain, do they anticipate you being a sounding block for their members? Will you be publishing monthly or quarterly reports? How is this information going to get out there to the public? It's actually going to be both. And, uh, And we will have reports and information that will be going directly to the the customers of the different farm credit associations, but we will also have the uh, terrain uh, terrain website, uh, and where we will make that information available to the ag community as a whole. All right, so we'll be watching for those updates as they get rolled out. And Don, I know you're in a management role now here, Chief Research and Analytics Officer there at Terrain, but for years you have watched the cattle industry. And do you have a few minutes? Can I pick your brain on what's going on in cattle? Oh, while my role has changed a degree, I have I have not lost my uh, my interest or connection to the cattle market. I'd be happy to talk about it. Well, I want to talk to you about a question that I was asked earlier this week, and I thought it was a really good one about processing capacity. We've heard a lot of plans for expansions. We've seen a lot of announcements, Don, but we've also seen construction costs climbing a lot. Looking out to next year, how much do you think production or processing capacity is going to expand? 
from the if you take all of the press releases that have been made over the last year to 18 months if if all of those facilities were to be constructed we would increase daily slaughter capacity but better than 20,000 head that's just simply unrealistic if you take the announcements of the plants that have actually been greenlighted so you've got sustainable beef uh, North Platte uh, you, you've got producers own beef there in the Amarillo area. Uh, you've got the American Foods plant west of St. Louis and, and some of the other regional plants. But just, I say, the, the plants that have been green-lighted and have broken and are in the process or have already broken ground, we will increase daily slaughter capacity around 9,000 head a day. And that 9,000 head a day, that is, again, a huge expansion in capacity. Don, when do you think that's going to start to hit the, the auction markets? What are those packers going to need to build or, or, or get out there to the sale barn to fill those hooks? We're a ways off. Uh, you know, you're, you're talking a minimum of, of two, more realistically, two and a half years. So it will be probably during the first half of 2025 before we ever see any of this new capacity uh, really start to to go into operation. Now the interesting part with that, and you brought up you brought the, the up a good question, is we know the rate of cow liquidation that we have seen for three years now. We know the acceleration of that cow liquidation because driven by drought in 2022 and we have expectations for that liquidation of certainly as the, as the dry weather continues at this juncture we expect that cow liquidation to continue into at, at, at least the first half of 2023 so we we're, we're looking at probably tw the the 24 calf crop but but really 2025 before we see this cycle fully bottom and we start to rebuild the female inventory. Don, as you look at that potential bottom coming in 24 or 25, is it going to be, are we going to have smaller numbers than we saw at the last bottom in 2014, 2015, do you think? We absolutely are. If you'll think back, the low ebb we saw on beef cow numbers in two, January of 14 was about 28.9 million beef cows. This go round, by the time we see additional liquidation in 2023, we think we'll see the low point of this cycle either side of that 28 million head. So, yes, it's going to be smaller. It's coming. We are seeing those factors, that high input cost and the lack of moisture across the plains certainly impact the breeding stock herd. Don Close, before we let you go, if we've got listeners who want to keep up to speed with what you're doing at Terrain, is there a website up yet for folks to do that with? The website is up and, and we're getting a, a really good level of traffic, but it uh, it is terrain, terrainag.com terrainag.com folks check that out keep up to speed on the factors that are impacting the ag industry because my goodness there's a lot of them don close thanks so much for joining us today always good to talk with you mike thank you and folks stick around we'll keep the focus on protein but we're going to turn our attention to pork with dr paul sunberg of the swine health information center when aoa returns Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. These acres you've put your life into, your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable, now and for generations to come. Learn more about how we keep families farming at ADSPipe.com. 
On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month's edition focused on poultry. Shelby Watson of the USA Poultry and Egg Export Council joined the show with Mike Beard, Indiana farmer. We talked about how much corn exported poultry uses in this country. In 2021, the U.S. poultry industry exported about 303 million corn bushel equivalents worth of poultry. So we're expecting to... Um, fly by that this year. Um, We know the numbers are already kind of bypassing that. So we're excited to see the full 2022 picture. Um, But the poultry industry consumes about 1.2 billion bushels of corn, which makes them the largest consumer um, of corn grain in the livestock sector. Mike Beard, corn grower from Indiana, he had this to say. One bird doesn't eat a lot of feed, but a lot of birds will will eat a lot. That's the monthly grind from NCGA and AOA. Tune in December 7th for the next installment. At Bravant, our corn and soybean varieties are vetted nearly three million times against the competition. How many? Three million frickin' times! Hey man, I'm standing right next to you. Ah, sorry, got a little excited. Don't take us at our word, take us at our proof. Visit Bravant.com to see for yourself. Bravant Seeds, it's about time. Bravant multi-year on-farm pre-commercial head-to-head comparisons, third-party and research trials, based on more than 2.8 million comparisons. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and if left untreated can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, welcome back to AOA. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. You know, each month here on AOA, we like to track the issues that are emerging in, well, a lot of different aspects of agriculture. And when it comes to swine health, there's one place we turn, and it's Schick, the Swine Health Information Center. Joining us for this month's update on emerging diseases, both domestically and around the world, is Dr. Paul Sundberg. He's the executive director of Schick. And Paul, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Hi, Mike. Good to be with you. It's always a pleasure. It is indeed. You know, before we get into the substance of the reports uh, this month, Paul, I want to ask you a question about how the audience uses them. We talk about them each and every month. I imagine pork producers really love to have this information. Schick recently conducted a survey. How, how do people utilize the reports and the information that you create there at the Swine Health Information Center? Yeah, Mike, that, that was an effort to try to do an assessment of the value of those reports that we put out. And especially we wanted to focus on actionable items that came out of these reports. Not just, they're, they're good for information, but we wanted to understand that there are actionable items that come out of this that actually make a difference on the farms, whether it's uh, the domestic reports or the international reports. And, and the feedback that we got was, was just about 100% positive and, and telling us that, yeah, we make, uh, we make decisions about biosecurity, about vaccinations. We make decisions about the health aspects of our pigs based on the information we get, and these reports are an important part of that. They certainly all are. And Dr. Sundberg, with that being the case, the information that's in these reports, if I were a, a hog producer, is there any other repository of this information anywhere, or is it is it truly Schick that uh, keeps this out there for the public? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I don't know that there is. There's a variety of different reports that come out from different countries. Within the U.S., I'm not so sure that there's anything that I'm not aware of anything that compiles the information the way we do. 
the reports that we get about the domestic in, uh, endemic diseases here are a compilation of information from six of the main veterinary diagnostic labs in the country. So it takes uh, better than 95, 98% of the diagnostic tests in swine and puts it together into a report, into a comprehensive report. So um, I think it's pretty, um, it's pretty comprehensive and I, I'm, I think it's pretty unique. It is indeed. And let's dive into this month's results. Paul, it is fall. Curtains are going up on some of those barns. Are we seeing an increase in disease pressure? Yeah, you know, let's talk, let's start with PERS and, um, and the increase in PERS. It, overall, there's a moderate increase in PERS. There's some hot spots in Nebraska and Missouri. That's one of the things about these reports. We can identify hot spots around the country. Overall, there's a moderate increase in the outbreaks of PERS. But the really concerning thing is that there has been a substantial increase in outbreaks of PERS on finishing sites. And historically, when you look back at the data over the years, um, the outbreaks of PERS on, fi on finishing sites precede outbreaks of PERS in breeding herds. So we're coming into that season now. That's part of the reason why we initiated a biosecurity call for proposals to try to understand this better and try to get around people moving viruses around, moving different diseases around. And that's a big effort. But uh, for PERS especially, it's concerning because of that increase in the finishing sites, and that predicts the increase in breeding sites. Resp All other, right. things, other things putting the barns together, respiratory uh, outbreaks, mycoplasma and influenza, this is the season to be vaccinated for influenza. Um, neither of those are outside of normal bounds of what we'd expect, but both of those can be part of of a general respiratory agent mix that can cause um, production problems. And so that's another biosecurity issue that uh, has to be addressed as we come into the winter months. Absolutely. From a biosecurity standpoint, that's so vital here in this uh, economy in particular. Any other concerns domestically, Paul, that you're watching or you think producers need to have their eye on? You know, the only other thing is uh, porcine epidemic diarrhea, PED. Um, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, and North Carolina are all hot spots for PED right now. 2022 has been a really strange year for PED because we haven't seen the normal seasonality to PED outbreaks. PED has been higher than we've expected all year um, since the first part of the year. And um, now the outbreaks on, that we're seeing on finishing sites especially are, again, um, associated with the biosecurity the setbacks, biosecurity lapses. So you can't emphasize biosecurity enough uh, to address all of these things. And Paul, Schick also does have information on biosecurity. Don't you have some best practices on there as well? Well, we're, we've got a big effort right now in trying to understand better how we can enhance biosecurity on the farms. There's a call for proposals out. It closes December 16th. People can find information about it on the swinehealth.org website. But it is a better than $2 million effort to put into understanding how we can enhance biosecurity, especially in this time where we have labor shortage challenges and people going from farm to farm uh, and, and helping to understand motivation and incentives to actually adhere to and, and stay with the biosecurity practices on the farm. Absolutely. And staying with them, keeping them secure is so important because we're not just dealing with disease pressure in the U.S. Dr. Sundberg, we've got diseases around the world. And I understand the Philippines saw their first African swine fever case. Is that true? Well, it's not the first one, but it's spreading there. It's spread into an area of the Philippines where it hasn't been before. So it's not that unusual for the spread of ASF in a country, just like we've seen in countries in Europe. But yeah, Philippines is reporting a big outbreak in a new area of their country just the last couple of months. Other than the Philippines and this, this new regional outbreak, uh, Paul, where else has African swine fever been popping up recently? Well, uh, certainly, uh, you know, in Eastern uh, Europe, uh, Romania, um, Germany, Poland, it continues to go on. One of the interesting things in Poland is that there have been um, 13 new outbreaks uh, since the first of the year, for newly identified outbreaks, with over 86,000 pigs having to be depopulated. 
But there's some good news there in that in 2021, there were 124 new outbreaks in Poland during that time. So maybe there's some progress being made there. One of the things that we try to keep an eye on also is different syndromes around the world. We were um, notified to found a, a die-off, a mortality event in Ecuador. And that's concerning because that's in the Western Hemisphere. We noticed the same thing happening in the Dominican Republic before they became positive with ASF. So we asked about the Ecuador situation and looked into that. Ecuador has tested for both classical swine fever and ASF, and USDA has helped with that effort, and they've confirmed that it's not classical swine fever or ASF. So that's some, also some positive news to report. Well, sure. Yeah, that is, uh, unless it's something worse. I hope they keep running those tests. <laughs> Dr. Sunberg, I'm curious, uh, African swine fever, glad to hear it's starting to slow down, or at least the pace of outbreaks are starting to slow. Wanted to turn our attention real quick to foot and mouth disease. You know, We've seen that outbreak across the in Indonesia. We've seen Australia crack down. What sort of progress is being made there? Yeah, um, Australia is very concerned about that, and they've made a big effort in helping Indonesia in a vaccination program, educational program, control program in that, um, in that country, because they're right next to them. So Australia is really concerned about that spilling over into Australia. There has been uh, progress made in Indonesia toward that. Uh, as I said, there's a big vaccination push and a control push that includes depopulation. So with Australian help, as well as with other international help, um, that is starting to come under control as best that I know about, and it's a big effort to make that happen. Indeed it is. Paul, earlier this year we saw in Australia Japanese encephalopathy virus, an outbreak. I know you, uh, Schick, recently helped put on a symposium about JEV. How did that go? What was the crowd like? Oh, the crowd was great. It was a symposium. What we wanted to do was we wanted to um, get, employ the, the Australians, the, the veterinarians on the farms in Australia, as well as the public health and animal health officials in Australia, and learn from their experience what happened with the outbreak um, on the farms, as well as how did the government uh, agencies respond, and how did the public respond. That was one of the main efforts of the symposium, and we had about 150 people, both local and in the U.S. as well as internationally, that were either on-site or virtual participants. It was a great audience. We had good discussion about it, and putting together a plan for the U.S in trying to help to uh, prevent this and respond to it should it get here. That's key. we got to be prepared should these unfortunate things come to our shores. Folks, we've been talking with Dr. Paul Sundberg, Executive Director of the Swine Health Information Center. Dr. Sundberg, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for the opportunity, Mike. If you want more information, you can find it at swinehealth.org. And stick around. We'll be talking with Arlen Suderman of Stonex when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. As a farmer, growing your business is more than just a 9 to 5. It's your life's work. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System goes all in to help you stay on top. Backed by decades of innovation, offering the latest trait technology and triple herbicide tolerance, plus more weed species controlled than any other soybean system. Because you mean business, and so do we. Learn more at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. <laughs> I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. 
You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. We're watching in the trade a few different things on this Thursday. We got export sales for the week ending November 3rd. They were still rather weak with corn just at 10.4 million bushels, and that is the lowest for the week since 2012. Sales of soybeans were no better than average for the week, but on the low side of expectations coming in at 29.2 million bushels, while wheat was at 11.8 million bushels. China, again, the featured buyer of U.S. soybeans in the week ending November 3rd at a net 34.1 million bushels with 21.8 of that, a switch from previous sales to unknown destinations. We did get a sale on the daily wire of corn to Mexico for this marketing year. 209,931 metric tons. So far, the export sales not really having much of an impact on the grain and oilseed markets. In fact, soybeans are slipping moderately lower with corn down moderately and wheat futures are mixed. Cattle futures mixed as well. Export sales there for beef and pork weren't too great either. We see as well, we got the consumer price index released here this morning and the CPI rose 0.4% month on month in October, matching last month's gain, but falling well short of analyst expectations that it would rise 0.7%. And that is definitely something that is being supportive to the stock market early on with the Dow Jones up some seven to 800 points, the dollar taking a beating, the dollar index down almost 200 basis points, trading around that 108.50 mark here in early trade on Thursday. So we're going to watch the combo of the CPI effect on the market versus export sales as we head towards the weekend to see how the grain and livestock trade reacts. But overall, looking like a fairly mixed day, choppy day for the most part on Thursday across grains and livestock. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track, no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, welcome back to AOA. You know, this week, there is no shortage of news for market watchers to try and digest. Of course, on Tuesday, we had the midterm election. Certainly a lot of market impact there. We're still figuring out how it's going to play out longer term. Then on Wednesday, had the World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates released by the USDA. Arlen Suderman of StoneX will give us his thoughts on those in just a moment. And then, of course, early on Thursday, we saw that CPI, that inflation data come out. All of these things moving the markets. I'm glad we've got Arlen Suderman here to help point us in the right direction. Arlen, thanks for joining us today. It's good to be back with you, Mike. Of those three things, election, WASD, CPI, print, Arlen, which is the most important for the ag trade to keep an eye on? Oh, right now, I really think it's uh, it's going to be that CPI number and uh, the monetary policy influences it might have. We've already had one Federal Reserve member come out this morning and say, you know, maybe it's time to start thinking about uh, slowing the pace of monetary tightening. And, of course, that news is going over well on Wall Street. Ironically, it was just last week that the Federal Reserve, when it met, made the statement that uh, lessons from the past as they've studied their past mistakes was that they eased up too quickly on monetary tightening in times of inflation, allowing inflation to come roaring back even stronger. Um, but yet the market's choosing to believe today, hey, this means 
means it's all over. The worst is behind us. Um, and and a part of that's because of how low we are right now in the stock market that we're getting this. If we'd had the same numbers 18 months ago at the levels of stock market's trading, we'd probably be down as much as we're da- up today. But how does that tie into grain and oil seeds? It all shapes the sentiment of the fund managers on their willingness to own the riskier assets. It doesn't mean that green and oil seeds are going to go up from here, but with a sharply lower dollar that's broken chart support today, uh, it does start to create a few tailwinds. The green and oil seeds still have to have a fundamental story, but it does change how the market views that fundamental story and does give a little more, more of a positive bias, even though we're not seeing it immediately um, in today's trade, it does have an effect longer term in how these markets are traded. Arlen, I'm really glad you brought up the weakness that's developed in the dollar today. When I checked here, the dollar was down 2,000 basis points. That is a, a huge move in a currency index. Can you put that into perspective for us? How often do we see a move of this size and does 2,000 basis points to the downside really make us more competitive on the global scene for our grain prices? It does. Now, we have a long ways to go to really be competitive, but it's a big step in the right direction And for the grains and for the meats. 2,000-point uh, moves are, are very rare, and uh, they happen maybe once every few years or something like that, and so it is something to take notice. And basically, we set the stage for this with sharp drops um, over the past week that took us down to the bottom of the trading channel. Now, we've been on the bottom of the trading channel before and then it would bounce back up and go to new highs and it started to bounce once again but today's numbers that bounce was over once it saw today's numbers and it just went right through the bottom of that channel like a hot knife through butter Um, and so what that does then is make those owners who are long the dollar or owners of the dollar think twice about holding those positions and it results in more selling which tends to drive us lower Longer term, we have to see policy back this move up. This is a lower dollar based on the expectation that we'll see policy changes from the Federal Reserve. Um, If we don't see that actually happen, we can see the dollar go right back up to new highs. Um, But the market is trading with a lot of confidence this morning that they will see that policy change. And when will we see, when will we get confirmation for the Fed's next move, 75 or 50 basis points, Arlen? Is it December? Yeah, it's it's in December before we see that. Uh, the Fed meets basically every six weeks. Um, and so it just met last week. So we're talking about another five weeks away before they meet once again. Of course, Fed members love to be out in the, in the public. They love to give speeches. And so many of them are going to be making comments and the market's going to be reacting to all their comments coming out as they see that as some indication of what may happen at the next meeting. Um, but we're 34 days away from the next meeting and the next statement from them. Okay. Arlen, I've got kind of a, a weird question for you. This was this was brought to my attention earlier this week, and I did not have a good answer for it. When we think about inflation and when we think about what the Fed is doing, they're trying to raise interest rates, as I understand it, to pull dollars out of the economy, to kind of slow down the, the amount of money that's out there in the economy. And I was asked a question that does this collapse in the crypto market and seeing the trillions of dollars in equity disappear there, does that accomplish the same thing as what the Fed is trying to do with regard to inflation? Uh, that's a little bit trickier question. Um, there's some theory that it does, but uh, in reality, I don't think it has the same effect as withdrawing it from the economy through via what the Fed is doing. Uh, I think that's a more effective way of doing things. And in fact, you, ultimately it comes down to what is M2 money supply doing. And M2 money supply is really the amount of money that we have available to spend, be it in our, in our pockets, in our wallets, Um, in our checking account, in our savings account that have easy access that are fairly liquid, etc. And when you look at what M2 money supply is right now, it's still more than twice what it was. um, Wait a minute, I'm getting that turnaround Fed balance sheet. 
Um, Fed balance sheet is more than twice what it was when the pandemic started. M2 money supply is still up uh, by about 5 or $6 trillion above what it was when the pandemic started. So the money is still in the economy, still in the system. We've only, with the monetary tightening we've had going on uh, through the summer and into the fall, we've only brought it down a small amount relative to the total. We've got a long ways to go um, before we really pull that money down. And uh, if the consumer starts feeling better about things and consumer sentiment starts improving based on what's happening today and et cetera, then the consumer will go right back to spending and that inflation will be right back there again because the money is there for that to happen. Good point. Still some dry powder out there in accounts. Well, all of these things are going to interact with the fundamental factors here in the grain and livestock markets. Arlen, I want to talk to you about the wheat market real quick. I understand tomorrow there's going to be a discussion about an extension of that Black Sea grain deal. How much is the market going to be watching that? Uh, a tremendous amount it's going to be watching it. And now I was asked yesterday, what's the market got priced in? Has it got priced in uh, that it's going to be blocked, or that it's going to be extended or what? And I said, I think it's got priced in the expectation that it's going to be extended. Um, Ukraine talks optimistically about it, but they always talk optimistically about it. The same for Turkey, the same for the United Nations. It's Russia that has been making threats about not doing so. Um, but I think we really saw, and this is the way the market is interpreting it. Uh, if we go back, what was it, about 10 days ago when Russia all, all of a sudden shocked us uh, and a week ago Saturday and said they were withdrawing from, they were suspending participation in the agreement. And so everything came to a standstill for a moment. And then Ukraine and the United Nations says, we're going to keep shipping. And they kept shipping. Now, the insurers said, we're not going to insure those, those, um, those ships. Um, and so that kind of brought things to a halt again. But what Russia saw at that point was that Ukraine and the United Nations were willing to call their bluff, and that meant that they had to either shoot a ship out of the water or rejoin the agreement. And that told the world from the, from the market standpoint that Russia no longer has the leverage to stop it because Russia probably had too much to lose by shooting one of these ships out of the water, so to speak. And so the assumption is, and why wheat prices broke support on the charts and are trending lower, the assumption is, whether it's right or wrong, we will soon find out that Russia will find a way to say, okay, we got what we wanted, and so we're going to allow the agreement to be extended. All right, we'll continue to watch for those headlines. Arlen, bringing it back domestically, we have seen ongoing struggles with, with transportation, with the inland waterways, of course, and the rail issues. How is that impacting basis? What are you seeing out there in the countryside basis-wise? Well, basis has been strong. Uh, depends on whether you're talking corn or soybeans. Basically, with the low water levels on the Mississippi, we saw basis along the river terminals for both corn and soybeans really plummet this fall because barge freight rates are so high they had to account for that. We've seen those barge freight rates come well off of their highs, and it's not because the water levels have improved that much, but it's basically because customers said, we're not going to even take the chance of ordering through the Gulf because we're worried that we wouldn't get those contracts fulfilled. So that's eased somewhat. On the corn side, the big story is the fact that we still see basis in the high plains at 215 and sometimes even 230 above December futures trying to pull corn out of the eastern Midwest. So we're seeing hundreds of trains lined up to haul corn from the east to the west. And that is supporting basis in the eastern Midwest, even though we have the river problems, that's providing some support there. Um, so it's, it's a very unusual situation. That big sucking sound we hear is the sucking sound of pulling corn to the feedlots of the high plains all the way from the eastern Midwest. Just a very unusual type of a situation. It is indeed, even with shipping costs being what they are, a 215, 230 premium is enough to get some bushels moving. Folks, we've been talking with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist over at StoneX. And Arlen, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your insight on these volatile markets. Thank you much, Mike. And folks, stick around. When we return, we're going to talk about a few other stories that are impacting the ag markets. And we'll have that here when AOA returns. 
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner too. Through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. We all know clean fields lead to strong yields. That's why ExtendFlex soybeans offer triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate to control more weed species than any other soybean system. Even tough weeds like water hemp, palmer amaranth, and mare's tail. Get the control, flexibility, and proven performance you need so you can focus on the business at hand instead of beating back weeds. Explore the Roundup Ready Extend crop system at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month's edition focused on poultry. Shelby Watson of the USA Poultry and Egg Export Council joined the show with Mike Beard, Indiana farmer. We talked about how much corn exported poultry uses in this country. In 2021, the U.S. poultry industry exported about 303 million corn bushel equivalents worth of poultry. So we're expecting to... Um, fly by that this year. Um, we know the numbers are already kind of bypassing that, so we're excited to see the full 2022 picture. Um, but the poultry industry consumes about 1.2 billion bushels of corn, which makes them the largest consumer um, of corn grain in the livestock sector. Mike Beard, corn grower from Indiana, he had this to say. One bird doesn't eat a lot of feed, but a lot of birds will, will eat a lot. That's the monthly grind from NCGA and AOA. Tune in December 7th for the next installment. These acres you've put your life into, your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable, now and for generations to come. Learn more about how we keep families farming at ADSPipe.com. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. 
Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Certainly appreciate you making us a part of your day, particularly with all the volatility that is happening in the ag industry right now. One of the ongoing challenges, and I, I use that phrase a lot because this has been an ongoing challenge for the better part of two years now, it's supply chain. It's transportation. We spoke about it briefly with Arlen Suderman here just in the last segment. These low water levels on the Mississippi continue to be an impact, and the grain and really broad economy continue to watch what's developing over at the Class 1 railroads. Back in September, there was a lot of concern that we could see a full-on strike for the nation's six Class 1 railroads, those big railroads that carry the bulk of, of America's commodity freight on the rails. And there was concern there was going to be a strike. The workers at 12 different unions that work for these Class 1 railroads had been operating without a contract since 2020, and these negotiations had been ongoing. The railroads came together with the president and some of the union officials put out a compromise plan a month ago which stopped the strike talk to give all of the unions time to look at the proposal, discuss it amongst their membership, and then vote. Well, those votes are starting to come due. As of now, several different unions, I believe three of them, have officially turned down the proposed settlement, but some of the biggest unions have not. There are still, the, the largest two unions are still voting on the matter, and the fact that several of these unions have turned it down means that the risk of a strike is coming back into focus. Now, the good news is, some of the unions that officially turned down their expiration of the cooling off period would have ended November 19th, so just a week before Thanksgiving. But the unions who have voted no got together and they agreed to put a hold on any actions until at least December 4th, which is when two of the other larger unions votes they believe will be in, and then together they'll work out the best way to move forward. But the takeaway from this story is that the threat of a rail strike remains very, very much in the future, though now we're looking at an early December start date potentially rather than a mid-November one. No doubt the NCCC and the Brotherhood workers of the, the railroads will continue to keep working on this to try to find some way to come to an agreement. In the meantime, for those folks who are looking for alternatives to railroads, it had been the river system. We saw lots of tonnage move across the rivers, but now with the ongoing drought here across the country, those rivers are drying up. Data was just released from NOAA, the National Oceanography, National, the government's weather people, I apologize, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration just released their data from October. Now, certainly it takes a little bit of time to calculate all of the figures, but unsurprisingly, I think to a lot of our audience, October was dry. The average precipitation was 1.66 inches across the country. So, of course, we're looking at a lot of dry areas as well when we're coming up with this average. And that's half an inch below average. That half an inch below average doesn't sound like a whole lot, but when we're looking at it nationwide. That puts this October as the third driest October on record. Now, Florida had had its eighth driest uh, October on record, while California and Minnesota each saw their 11th driest. However, there was an abundance of precipitation during the month of October for New Jersey, and it came in at the 10th wettest on record. This dryness continues to impact the inland waterway, not just the Mississippi, which of course we've been discussing on this program, but the Ohio, the Snake, the Columbia, and the Missouri River systems are all dealing with lower than expected water level, and as such, they are dealing with much more expensive freight costs up and down those waterways. Hopefully, some of the moisture that has fallen here over the past two weeks will do some good in bringing those levels up, and maybe that will help bring these costs back down as the bulk of that harvest needs to move up and down these rivers. Taking a look up the Missouri River quite a little bit to the town of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. 
There was a measure on the ballot on Tuesday for their midterm elections that would have banned new construction of slaughterhouses within the Sioux Falls city limit. It was a closely fought initiative, ample uh, ample dollars on both sides, a lot of strong feelings, and the vote was turned down. New slaughterhouses will be allowed to be built in Sioux Falls. Uh, this was a uh, this was a vote that had pulled uh, uh, Governor Nome into the discussion. Farm Bureau was taking sides on this. Now it does appear to have put it to bed, at least for the time being. By a vote of 52 to 48, the city of Sioux Falls said, we'll allow new processing plants to be constructed. However, there is an opposition group, Smart Growth Sioux Falls. It's expected that they are probably not done, might try to push this into the court system moving on. Looking around the world, folks, we've talked a lot about bird flu over the past six months. We've talked a lot about it here over the past two weeks with Brian Ernest yesterday and Beth Breeding from the National Turkey Federation on Monday. Bird flu in this country has been quite a concern for poultry producers, but it's not localized. Here in the U.S. alone, growers, poultry producers around the world have been dealing with bird flu. And in fact, the country of France today put themselves on high alert for bird flu, which means that all French poultry farmers now have to keep their birds inside. The Ag Ministry made this announcement early Thursday morning. France is the second largest poultry producer in the European Union, and they have seen a fresh rise in bird flu outbreaks over the past several months. They have had to cull about 22 million birds. So that impact for bird flu is going to be changing the way protein is concerned, consumed around the world. And finally, folks, before we go for the day, I want to call your attention to something we haven't talked about much on the show this week, but it's COP27, that climate change body of the UN. They are meeting right now, and it was announced earlier today that they are going to be coming up with a roadmap for reducing emissions in agriculture. Now, COP did a very similar roadmap for the energy industry several years ago in, in partnership with the International Energy Agency, and investors have looked at that roadmap, and now they're urging the UN to compile the same thing with regard to agriculture. Now, this push isn't coming necessarily from the UN itself. It's coming from a group of management of investment managers. These folks have about $18 trillion under management, and they're pushing the FAO to come up with a roadmap for how ag can reduce its emissions. It's expected to be released next year. No doubt we'll have some comments and some thoughts on that as it continues to get built up. Folks, tune in tomorrow. We're going to take a look at the freight situation in this country. Country, see how things are looking on the roads, not just the rails and the waterways. Thanks for listening to AOA today, folks. We'll see you tomorrow. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month's edition focused on poultry. Shelby Watson of the USA Poultry and Egg Export Council joined the show with Mike Beard, Indiana farmer. We talked about how much corn exported poultry uses in this country. In 2021, the U.S. poultry industry exported about 303 million corn bushel equivalents worth of poultry. So we're expecting to... Um, fly by that this year. Um, we know the numbers are already kind of bypassing that. So we're excited to see the full 2022 picture. Um, but the poultry industry consumes about 1.2 billion bushels of corn, which makes them the largest consumer um, of corn grain in the livestock sector. Mike Beard, corn grower from Indiana, he had this to say. One bird doesn't eat a lot of feed, but a lot of birds will, will eat a lot. That's the monthly grind from NCGA and AOA. Tune in December 7th for the next installment.